Good afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Grocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on this show, bees, ginkgo, and chocolate. In addition, we'll be joined by Dr. Ed O'Neill, who will talk about global healthcare disparities. Also, we'll find out what a pulsar is. So stay tuned for all this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week, coming right up on the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. And again, that makes me Charles Lee, providing the voice of reason. Whoa, you mean the voice of light. <laughs> well, that's what we try and provide. You know, your illumination blinds me. <laughs> try and get a tan then. <laughs> I'm getting a little pasty. Do you consider yourself to be wild? Wild type? <laughs> yeah, you know, like uninhibited, unimpressed, having a passion for the nectar of life. Uh, I haven't even seen the flower of life. <laughs> okay, so you're not like a wild bee then. Sea urchin. Oh, uh, so that's unfortunate because we need more wild bees to pollinate our plants. Uh, it turns out honeybees are suffering from mites. Uh, they've been killing them off, and as a result, pollination across the country has been dropping at an alarming rate. And what some scientists here at Berkeley and UC Davis have discovered is that if they introduce wild bees into the habitat, the conventional honeybees will actually pollinate five times better. They'll be able to switch to different plants hmm. or different flowers more regularly, and as a result, be able to pollinate much better. Are they suggesting then that they should release a group of these bees? and ha- let- That is one possibility. So it turns out even if you release just more honeybees, the rate of pollination doesn't exactly improve. But just the introduction of a few of these wild bees changes the behavior of the honeybees drastically so that they won't simply pollinate at the same flower all the time, but they'll actually go to other flowers. So this could have big implications for crops and agriculture since a lot of them depend on uh, flowering pollination. To go- and uh, this was reported in our very favorite journal, actually. <laughs> It's been a while since we had a story from there, actually. Yes, the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Isn't that PNAS? PNAS. All right, well, I'm torn between which of these stories to talk about since uh, they could both relate to the previous one. Do you want to hear about ginkgo biloba or insect fighting? Wow. I'm giving you a choice for once here on the program. Ginkgo sounds cool. It almost <laughs> increases your blood flow. All right, everybody loves a little blood flow increase. And after, since that last article was from PNAS, here we go. Ginkgo may be involved in a symbiotic relationship with a fungus. Man, so those fungus have been altering our destiny since the beginning, huh? They're like the mice. They know the answer to life, the universe, and everything. (laughs) They are fun guys. (laughs) (laughs) That's an oldie but a goodie. (laughs) So it turns out that these particular fungal symbiotes of the ginkgo biloba may actually help ginkgo plant produce a lot of its medicinal compounds. Oh, really? What's been discovered is that ginkgo biloba, when it's been purified to try and isolate a lot of these medicinal compounds, they find that these ghost organelles that are found in the the extract, Uh they actually grow up into these fungal that are free-free living. Uh So people are still trying to study these and figure out what exactly is going on. 
group led by Volker Huss from the University of Erlangen in Germany, have demonstrated that the algal are present in whole plants as well, not just the cell extracts. So these are microbes that are living among the ginkgo plant cells then? Yeah. What's known about the synthesis of the medicinal compounds is that it occurs in two compartments, uh-huh. one which appears to be in the plant cell itself right. and one in some other organelle, which is not known. Hmm. So it's presumed that maybe this fungal symbiote is actually helping to make the synthesis of the drug. So I wonder if you uh, spray a bunch of fungicide on these ginkgo plants and let it thrive, would it like not be able to produce all the medicine then? I think you might get a completely different medicinal effect. <laughs> sort of the Agent Orange effect, I think. <laughs> it might taste like orange. The, the interesting thing about this is that if you look at comparative studies, people have seen that a sort of partnership looks like it goes back about 100 million years or so, mm-hmm. which suggests that it's a very ancient thing and been going on for quite a long time. Well, I don't think I have any friends which are more than 100 million years old. I think the oldest one I have is 50 million. You know, he's still stuck in 50,000 BC. I still like him, though. (laughs) So this is very fascinating work. It was published in a recent edition of Science Now. So, Charles, what was the worst thing about this hot summer we had this year? I guess it was the melting of the ice in Greenland. How about that? Okay, it wasn't the melting of the chocolates in your pocket? Uh, I normally don't keep the chocolates in my pocket. Normally they're between my toes. Did it melt in your hands? (laughs) When I can get them out of my toes. Uh, So soon we may actually have chocolate that will not melt in your hands or your toes. (laughs) Are they breeding a particular form of the cocoa plant that is high melting? Not exactly. Cocoa butter actually melts around 86 degrees Fahrenheit. But it turns out you add cornstarch, one of our favorite additives. Is there any greater ingredient invented by mankind than cornstarch? Pretty soon, I think everything will be made out of corn, you know? <laughs> Paper, plastic. Humans. <laughs> <laughs> Some research was carried out at the Koko Research Institute of Nigeria. There is such a place. Wow. Well, uh, apparently that's where a lot of chocolate comes from. Okay. But unfortunately, it's also a place where it's not easy to distribute because it would melt in those regions. Right. So they found that by mixing about 10% starch, you can raise the melting temperature up to 122 degrees Fahrenheit. But they also found that if they add gelatin instead, uh, they would raise it up to 113 degrees. Oh, wow. Still a nice improvement, but in terms of taste, the starch actually is a lot better. Everybody loves the taste of cornstarch. <laughs> so anyways, this is the latest in food technology, and one day we won't have to worry about chocolates melting during those uh, hot summer days. <laughs> cool. So if people want to know more about this... Uh, actually, it was published in the July issue of the British Food Journal. All right, and finally, you're going to hear about this story anyway, (laughs) fighting insects. Don't they know how to have peace? Uh, Well, in fact, they do. But what these researchers at uh, the Neurosciences Institute, led by Herman Dierick and Ralph Greenspan, have done is that they've bred highly aggressive flies. Wow. Do they do kung fu on each other? Some might call the insect equivalent of a ninja warrior. Wow. Too smart, too, then. (laughs) You should see the way they throw a shuriken. (laughs) It's amazing. Inbred lab flies actually are a lot more docile than their Mm wild-type compatriots because it's not a very competitive environment. They don't have to fight over territory or food. Right. What these researchers were doing was trying to see if they could select for highly competitive behavior and isolate the genes that might be involved in that. Mm-hmm. And that's what they did, is they took a group of flies, put them in a restricted environment, sorted out the ones that were a little more aggressive, bred mm-hmm. those, etc., etc., for several generations, got some flies that were more prone to getting into a bar brawl, and isolated out the genes, and they came up with one called CYP6A20. 
why don't we clone an entire human army with these genes? Uh, or does that just sound like a bad science fiction movie plot? Probably people are already looking into it. <laughs> a bunch of killer penguins is what I want. Is they're that, cute, but is, they're dangerous. Yeah, you wouldn't expect penguin to be pulling an M60 out. And... <laughs> penguins on a plane. Uh, apparently, this is a gene encodes for something called cytochrome P450s, a group of enzymes, and uh, they're involved in a lot of biological processes, including development, reproduction, and detection of pheromones. Uh-huh. So it's quite interesting, but according to one geneticist, Trudy McKay at North Carolina State, she says that the result might have missed a few genes because they started out with inbred lines already. Oh. So you might be, have a limited variation to begin with. But interesting that they did pull out one gene that seems to be linked. So does this have any implications for other species? Well, I mean, they're presuming that if uh, these type of genes exist in flies, then they probably exist throughout uh, different species. But again, that's the tenuous link between animal studies, especially flies and humans. Fascinating work published in a recent edition of Nature. It's not in the Chuck Norris journals? You know, guns don't kill people. Chuck Norris kills people. (laughs) And that's all for our look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Dr. Ed O'Neill will join us to discuss solutions to the global healthcare disparities. So stay tuned. to the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. Well, while healthcare technology is developing at a rapid pace, the disparities in healthcare around the world are stark. While large foundations may have an impact at these differences, it may be grassroots efforts by individual healthcare providers that has the most profound effects. Well, joining us today on the Berkeley Grok's Science Show is Dr. Edward O'Neill. Dr. O'Neill has written the compelling new book, Awakening Hippocrates, a primer on health, poverty, and global service, where he explores the roots of the global health care disparities, his experience in this arena, and what individuals can do to help alleviate the problems. Uh, Dr. O'Neill, thank you very much for joining us today on the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Pleasure to have you on the program, and certainly had a lot of experience in this arena. Curious if you might be able to provide some examples of how these discrepancies arise and what are the sources of the disparities. That's a very long answer to that question. (laughs) Essentially, the bulk of Awakening Hippocrates is really dissecting out these component forces. I think some of the more striking disparities are those that are, are, for example, just in life expectancy. There's a 30-year differential between the richest countries and the poorest that exist right now. And today, just in this one day alone, there'll be 28,000 children under age 5 who will die of treatable illness along with 10,000 Africans will die of just three treatable diseases, AIDS, malaria, and tuberculosis. So these disparities, I think, are obvious to anybody who travels abroad, particularly those who go and work in developing countries. But there are things that have been there for a long time. What I think has been lacking is the understanding of the complexity of why these things continue year after year, what the component forces are, as well as, most importantly, perhaps, what any individual can and I think should do about rectifying these problems. Uh, So maybe we can explore some of these component forces that, for example, uh, is distribution of drugs a big problem? 
Yeah, I think the distribution of uh, medication in general is a problem. Medication and not just the medicines themselves, but the knowledge of how to use them. Paul Farmer, for one, has written about the semi-permeable membranes that surround the rich world in which <laughs> diseases, infectious diseases in particular, like drug-resistant tuberculosis and HIV-AIDS have freely traversed the bodies, yet solutions and the cures to these same illnesses have not so readily gone back the other way. And this is something that I think reflects much larger trends in our world, where we do have a concentration of wealth and knowledge and talent in the rich world. And I think what's been lacking for a long time are effective ways to get this talent and knowledge and resources out into the world. And that's really what these books seek to do. What would you say is the greatest single source of this disparity? That's a good question. I don't know that I could rank one. Hmm. Um, if there were one force, I would say it's probably our lack of understanding. Hmm. And we can hearken back to Dickens when, if you remember A Christmas Carol, hmm. the ghost of Christmas present warned Ebenezer Scrooge that there were two children clinging at his legs. One was want and the other one was ignorance. And as he said at that time, beware them both, but most of all, beware the boy, for on his brow is written doom unless the writing be erased. And I, I think a lack of understanding is probably one of the greatest forces, if not the most most important one that's acting in the world to continue these things year after year. I think most people have a, at least a passing knowledge that there are problems in world trade and, and the structures of the World Trade Organization, rather, rich country subsidies to their farmers and things like that that just pose enormous hurdles to the poor, as well as things like history and racism and epidemic infectious disease and uh, certainly uh, just the forces of history that have helped some countries develop and really hindered others. But I think it's the lack of the general understanding of the big picture and how all these things work together and how in many ways we are complicit in this ongoing injustice in the world, I think that's probably the greatest factor that continues these things forward year after year. In a sense, it's maybe sort of a passive complicity. Actually, sure. I, I think mostly this is just a lack of understanding on our part. I'm not one to demonize the large businesses of the world. I, I think, like Jeffrey Sachs and like many other economists around the world, I think you look at industry going into developing countries as one way that actually can get entry-level positions and, and help countries rise up out of these poverty traps just as China and India have done hmm. over the last 10 to 15 years. So I, I think there certainly are forces out there, but I don't think that there are many individuals that are knowingly violating what goes on. I, I think it's something that happens not really as a known side effect, but I think it's more really the side effects of, of other things going on. How, how is medical education in these countries? I think you really have to look at the country. Hmm. We've been working in Belize and in Guyana for a number of years, and I can tell you in Belize and Central America, there's very little ongoing medical education. There's only offshore medical schools that are primarily for U.S. physicians. And in Guyana, there's a very good system, but there's very little afterwards. In Kenya, where we have another program, there's the National Medical School in Nairobi, but I don't think the quality is really exceptionally good. And like many things in these developing countries, because there's so little revenue coming in through taxes since the earnings are so low, the government often is quite cash-strapped and really can't invest much in the infrastructure and in education itself. So what we've been doing for a number of years is sending doctors overseas through Omnimed, the nonprofit organization that I run and uh, founded, and most of what we do is education abroad. It's probably one of the best ways that people can make a contribution overseas. And is it just doctors that can get involved? No, we actually sent doctors, nurse practitioners, nurses, and we're starting a new program for medical students over the coming year as well. 
the second book in the, the companion guide to Awakening Hippocrates is called A Practical Guide to Global Health Service. And in that book, there are over 300 organizations looking for health volunteers of all types. And uh, not just health either, but also college and people that are non-health providers as well. I think there's no shortage of opportunity for people to engage in the world. And I think, you know, linking back to what we talked about earlier, I don't think it's a willful disregard. I think it's just something that, that historically we've been separated from many of these countries, either by two oceans or by uh, what seems like a, a world away in Central and South America, and that we don't think about these problems the way that many others around the world do. But once people engage directly, working in poor communities, and start to ask questions and understand that, geez, maybe this person is sick because they lost their land or because the policies set far off in Geneva have caused them to uh, become poor and sick. And I think once people have those revelations, they start to become more engaged and also choose to return again and again. It's a transformative process that we've seen time and again in our work, and certainly the history of, uh, of health interventions and other interventions abroad is just chock full of stories exactly like that. Mm. What can be done, do you think, uh, to improve education on these issues? Do you think it should be taught perhaps in medical schools? That's really the whole reason that I wrote Awakening Hippocrates in the Practical Guide was to try and galvanize the medical profession, to try and get people to be aware of people like Albert Schweitzer and Tom mm -hmm. Dooley and Paul Farmer, to look to these pioneers, to these icons of medicine, and to be inspired by them. I think that global health should be an essential part of the core curriculum of every medical school and school of public health in the country. I also think that many more undergraduate colleges should be teaching courses on global health and the larger issue of health inequality in our world. These are issues that are often seen as being on the back burner. I think in recent years with the advent of Bono and Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and Bill Clinton getting involved and people like that that have embraced this issue and have done so much in the world now, I think it is receiving more attention. But I, I still think that that mainstream movement is not quite there yet. And I'd like to see many more health providers out in the forefront. We certainly have a very proud history from people like Albert Schweitzer and Dooley and now Paul Farmer and Jim Kim and, and many, many others, Jonathan Mann. But I don't know that this is something that the average medical student would be familiar with as, for example, biochemistry. Uh, and I think this would be probably far more useful as well and certainly critically important in, in the current world affairs. There are so many issues that are tied directly to global poverty and health inequality. Certainly things like terrorism, the many wars around the world are, are triggered by these inequalities, and certainly emerging infectious diseases like SARS and AIDS and drug-resistant tuberculosis are, are really amplified in poor communities throughout the world. So we engage these issues at, I think, not just because of the ethical imperative to do so, but also because in the long run, it's what Oxfam has termed enlightened self-interest. In the long run, we help ourselves by helping the poor around the world. Right, indeed. But in the case of many drug companies, there has to be sort of a financial motive, which has led them to developing drugs for mostly first-world diseases while ignoring a lot of third-world diseases. Well, I think that's where the Gates Foundation has played such a huge role, hmm. and the Global Alliance for Vaccine and immunizations, that initiative is, uh, is really a, a very uh, a bold initiative that partners UN organizations, private foundations, and pharmaceutical companies to go out and, and really try and eliminate some of these just more gross and hideous disparities, like the statistic I alluded to earlier, the 28,000 kids dying every day. And I think we're going to see more of that. And certainly the story of AIDS is one in which for years we had 
people treated in the United States in rich countries and, and these enormous numbers of people around the world dying of HIV, and that still goes on. But we are seeing a ramping up of the numbers of people around the world that are on antiretroviral drugs, in large part because the cost of these drugs, through efforts of people like the Clinton Foundation and Médecins Sans Frontières and um, Partners in Health and organizations like that, that have helped to bring the cost of these down. And we're seeing more generics manufactured in, in Brazil and India and, and other places. So now you have the opportunity to get more people treated. So pharmaceuticals have certainly their share of faults. And a friend in Kenya calls PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, he calls it no drug company left behind. And there's certainly good reason for that. The pharmaceuticals in that program are up to 60 times more expensive than the local generics, which they often quout once they start flooding the markets with them. But, again, as more people become aware of what the core issues are, as more people start to read books like Awakening Hippocrates and start to get their arms around really this insanity that has persisted for decades and decades, I think the more you'll see these companies respond to public pressures. Indeed, indeed. Practically, what can a doctor or some person do to start getting involved? Where can they go and what first steps can they take? I think the first step is to pick up Awakening Hippocrates, and uh, I guess that would be the assumed response from an author that wrote it, but the reason I wrote this book is really to get people to think about these issues, and, and I started by introducing people to a young girl that I took care of in Kenya years ago, just to try and look at her situation and, and understand how a 10-year-old girl could be forced into commercial sex work uh, just to try and survive in a milieu that would virtually guarantee that she would be sentenced to death with AIDS. Once you can understand understand how that would happen, then I think you can break down some of the mythology that surrounds poverty, and then you can start to think more, more critically about engaging in this process. For a long time, what was missing in this realm was another book that would introduce people. And the Practical Guide to Global Health Service was really designed to get anybody, whether you're a student, whether you're outside of medicine or in, to get anybody to think critically about the issues of culture and the travels, the dangers of traveling on the roads and malaria and shots and all those things, to put it all in perspective and say, here's how you do it and here's why you get involved and here's how easy it is. So these two books do fill a gap that's been there for a long period of time. I know certainly when I went to Kenya in 1994, I looked for these books to find out how I can get back, and that was really how it all began for me. But I think that, that it's one good way to start, is to understand the issues, to really think critically about some of these issues of what's gone wrong in the development world before this, so that people don't recreate things of the past, of which there have been many. And then once they find a way to go abroad, then you know, there are literally hundreds of organizations that are actively seeking volunteers. And again, once people go, there's a very high likelihood that they'll want to return. It's sort of a related issue, but I'm curious, certainly in this country, there's getting to be developed two classes or two standards of health care. Yeah, yeah there's, there's no question that that's true. And um, we have 46 million uninsured in the United States. I, I think it's a blemish on our country. We're one of only three industrialized democracies in the world that lack health care for all our citizens. I, I'm embarrassed by that when I travel abroad. I, I think there's something that we should definitely remedy. I do think, though, that when you look around the country at the providers, many of the providers that work in the soup kitchens and staff the shelters are similar and part of the same pool of people that you'll also find working in the slums in Nairobi and in, in mission hospitals around the world. So I think there certainly is an overlap of those who care for the poor here and those who go abroad. I think that there should be political solutions to the problems that we face here, and I think we've seen some of those solutions. I think it's an uncomfortable place for, for many doctors to go 
but I think there's no reason why the United States can't care for all of its citizens and provide health insurance. Now, Massachusetts just came out with a plan that is going to cover all of its citizens, and which I think is admirable. It's not the way I would go. It's, it's a plan that still requires the, the workplace to cover it, and I think it, it would be far better if the government would cover it. The Medicare is a very successful program that I think very few people have problems with, and I think that would be a better way to expand it than to require health care to come from the workplace. But sure, I, I think it's two sides of the same ethical coin, that just as there are health disparities in our world, there are disparities in our country. And when I work in the emergency department later today, I will no doubt be confronted with patients that say, hey, look, doc, I, you know, I know you want to do an x-ray, or I know you want to do this CAT scan or other tests, but is there a way we can't do it because I don't have health insurance and I don't know how I'm going to pay these bills? I, I think that we could be much smarter about mm -hmm. our use of health care dollars, and spending 16% of our GDP on health care is, is far and away higher than any other country. I think the next closest is around 10, 9 or 10% of GDP. Mm -hmm. We could do a, a far better job, and I, I think we should. I hope it'll be a major issue in the next campaign for a president in 2008, but these things tend to cycle about every 20 years <laughs> or so, so we'll see. Yeah. So how did you yourself become interested in these issues? went to Tanzania when I was a medical student. I happened to walk by a lecture given by a physician who had just returned from Kenya and was showing stories of uh, telling stories of baboons running off with the surgical instruments and <laughs> climbing Mount Kenya. And so I went as a fourth-year medical student to Tanzania, and which started out as a quest to see animals and climb Kilimanjaro and do all those cool things, which I did, changed into something far more when I started to see the, the beauty and the grace of a people just trapped by impossible circumstance. And I became very curious about why this continued and why there wasn't more attention paid to this. So that was really the beginning of it all for me. And like many people in the health professions, I couldn't turn my back from it once I saw it. It was a, a transformative and, and life-changing experience. And my mission is to try and get many more people both in and outside the profession to take those same steps and undergo a similar transformation. Well, I certainly hope that occurs. Uh, the new book is Awakening Hippocrates. Dr. O'Neill, thank you very much for joining us today on the Berkeley Rock Science Show. Yeah, Charles, thank you so much for having me. And you were just listening to Dr. Ed O'Neill discussing solutions to global health care disparities. This is the Berkeley Rock Science Show you're listening to. Well, coming up next is the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Science Show. Well, we're back, and Dr. Ed O'Neill has graciously decided to stick around and play our game, the Grokatron 5000. <laughs> the Grokatron 5000 is, of course, our supercomputer, which was formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, In Need of Aid. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know, do they need aid? Dr. O'Neill, ready to play our game? Yeah, I am very ready, yeah. Uh, person number one, In Need of Aid, Michael Jackson. I think definitely. But I think the aid he needs is, is probably more psychological than uh, than anything else. I, I don't think he's even in the country now, so it might be hard to track him down, but uh, I, I think aid would be wise for him, yes. Okay. 
Uh, number two, uh, football team, the Arizona Cardinals. I think they need help. I don't know if aid would really help them, though, because I think they need help in a number of ways. I would have to say no, not uh, aid there, but I think uh, they need some football players. Uh, well, yeah, I've been living with that team for a while, and they haven't. <laughs> All right, uh, number three, Donald Trump. Does Donald Trump need aid? I was just in New York last week and walked by the Trump Tower. So I could tell you for sure he does not need any aid. I think pretty much all set. Although I would love to see him start to engage in the world the way Bill Gates has and Warren Buffett has and, and many others. We're waiting to see that from uh, the Donald. Well, hopefully he'll be giving aid. <laughs> yeah, I would think. <laughs> uh, number four, Mel Gibson. God, what a shame. I, I was really shocked by that, but I guess I shouldn't have been. Those, those rumors have been around for a while. His father denied the Holocaust and... I think he needs a few books, really. Interesting take on, on Christianity, but I think he needs some uh, education about what's gone on in the history of the world. And there's a few I could recommend for him. So, yeah, I'd say, uh, why don't we give Mel Gibson some aid in a very specific realm? Okay. Uh, and finally, number five, our perennial favorite, George Bush. <laughs> <laughs> Does he need aid? You know, ironically enough, and I do have to, to say this, I did not vote for the man and think that history will reflect that he's probably our worst president since Hoover, if not, if not historically one of the worst ever. Bush actually has increased U.S. foreign aid more than any president since Kennedy. Hmm. So to his credit, the Millennial Challenge Account and the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief have been two huge new programs that that administration has started. Unfortunately, that's one of the only things that, in my opinion, they've got right. So uh, he doesn't need aid. He needs a new job. And fortunately, <laughs> he's going to have one, but it's a few years away. Uh, well. A bit too far off for me. I, I, it's a shame what's happened at this point in our history with him. <laughs> well, I think things are going to change very soon. I think we're going to see some, some fairly startling changes in November. Uh, Dr. Neal, I do want to thank you very much for sticking around Player and Game and, of course, talking about your book, Awakening Hippocrates. Charles, I appreciate it. And if any of your listeners are interested, they can go to omnimed.org. And if anybody wants to send me an email at ejoneal at comcast.net, I'd be happy to reply, too. Well, thank you very much again. Great. Thank you, Charles. And Forrest here with the answer to last week's question of the week. What are pulsars? Well, pulsars are pretty, but they're actually neutron stars that spin and give off radiation in the radio wave. It's a mystery. Hello, it's the Pillsbury Doughboy. <laughs> Trying to make something out of Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Well, what is it? Well, if you know the answer or think you know the answer, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. You're not going to win anything, but your cake might rise faster. <laughs> and that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. Music